Welcome to Nordic by Nature, a podcast on ecology today sent from suburban Sweden and a mountain village in Uttarakhand, India, in the foothills of the Himalayas. My name is Tanya and my colleague RJ will be joining us later. Sound has been arranged by Diego Losa in Paris. In this episode, on activism, we have three strong voices who represent many thousands more at the forefront of change. First, you will hear the words of Satish Kumar. To people in the ecology movement, Satish Kumar needs little introduction. He has been a world-leading activist for over 50 years. In his early 20s, inspired by Gandhi and British peace activist Bertrand Russell, Satish embarked on an 8,000-mile peace pilgrimage together with E.P. Menon. They walked without any money from India to America via Moscow, London and Paris to deliver a humble package of peace tea to the then leaders of the world's four nuclear powers. After Satish, we will meet Marian van der Geer, a Dutch national living in London and an active member of the growing grassroots movement Extinction Rebellion that staged a 10-day demonstration across London recently in April 2019, preceding the UK Parliament declaring a climate change emergency. We will then hear from Siti Kasim, celebrity lawyer and human rights activist who is passionate about the rights of the indigenous people in the Malaysian peninsula, the Orang Asli. I hope that you can make some time to sit back and relax and simply enjoy listening. It's been snowing again last night. I've been reading about Arne Ness, the Norwegian philosopher. He was committed to non-violent communication and research. He coined the term deep ecology. His work can be summarized as follows. Number one, we underestimate ourselves. We confuse self with ego. Number two, human nature that is sufficiently mature cannot help but identify with all living beings. Schopenhauer, Descartes and Heidegger were all immature in these matters.
Number three, nature and our immediate environment has been largely left out of definitions of self. Number four, the meaning of life and the joy we can experience in being alive is enhanced by self-realization. Self-realization is enhanced by the self-realization of others. It is possible to act beautifully in harmony with nature and not just morally or immorally. greatest challenge today is to save ourselves from ecological devastation which violates the existence of all living things. In 2017, I met R.J. Rastogi at a conference called the Tasting India Symposium. After a long career as an ecologist, R.J. co-founded the Foundation for the Contemplation of Nature. The foundation has its headquarters, the Vrikshalaya Center, in a village in the foothills of the Himalayas. 
Vrikshalaya means home of the trees. Together with the village's women's association, RJ runs homestay courses in mountain resilience. In 2016, he won a prestigious prize, Global Maverick Teacher. When I met RJ, he described three very important basic principles of life upon which his courses are based. The dignity of physical work, interconnectivity and interdependence. Uh, my name is Ajay Rastogi and uh, for last 10 years I've gone back to live in my own village in the Himalayas. Uh, earlier I used to work with the Food and Agriculture Organization of United Nations, working as the organic program coordinator for the country. And uh, the basic drive to move back was to, for, to find a tool for transformation of people from inside so that they can connect deeply with the natural world. And we have now a residential program based out of village homestays. Participants are supposed to stay for a two-week program and help the host family, which is an agrarian family, in doing all the work that they do, like everyday work, uh, which means taking care of the cow, getting fodder from the forest, and getting enough drinking water from the springs. And the program is based on three pillars. One is called dignity of physical work, because unfortunately now we are uh, losing con contact in working with hands, our own hands. The second is interdependence, because sometimes we feel that if I'm economically sound, then I don't need anybody else. I just spend money and get whatever I want, but that's not how societies are structured, and that's not how the sustainability will come about. So they learn about interdependence. And the third thing is interconnectedness. And interconnectedness is more about the landscape elements that, yeah, this water is coming, but this is not by itself. You know, there is some trees, there is some infiltration taking place, there is some soil which can absorb, and then the water comes up. It's not as if it comes out of thin air. And uh, so we have a structured program. Now it's a three credit course called Mountain Resiliency. And it's going on. We work with the National Outdoor Leadership School for the last nine years. The students from all over the world come and participate in these programs. Thank you very much. Welcome. <laughs> RJ and I got talking. What can organizations learn from a village in the Himalayas? How is this way of life relevant to people living in cities? Is it possible to blueprint mountain resilience for resilient leadership? How can the tools and frameworks from ecology be applied at other types of organizations? We realized we needed to talk to a lot of different people. We started by asking Satish Kumar. Luckily, he had some time to meet us in London. Words have power only when they are practiced. Otherwise, words have no power. You can say love, but it has no power until you love someone you love. Or compassion. The word is compassion. But unless you have a compassion in practice, it has no power. The power comes with practice. Not why, but how. How we implement it. And 
And the way always is from seed to tree, from small to large. Start small, start wherever you are. The, the journey of a thousand miles begins with first step. So start wherever you are and, and by your authenticity, with your integrity, with your commitment, you will influence the others. So, so don't worry about how I influence others. You will influence others. There's no way you cannot influence others if you be the example and start and do things what you want to do in your life. And the other people see it and they will be impressed and they will follow you. This is how all big change happens. Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, uh, all these great people who have done. Just start. I could have had money. I did not go without money because I did not have money. But I went without money because I did not want to have money. And I said, money will not be a help. Because when I am walking for peace, I want to show that peace comes from trust. If I go to uh, Pakistan as an Indian, I meet a Pakistani. If I go as a Hindu, I meet a Muslim or Christian. But if I trust them and I go as a human being, they are human beings. And with that trust. So if you have money, then you go and stay in a hotel or a B&B, eat in a restaurant, uh, buy your own things. You don't need to trust anybody. You don't need anybody. But if you don't have money, then you need people to help you. What is more important, people or money? You can have money, and if you have no people, you cannot build a movement. But if you have people, then... So money is only a kind of means to an end. Money is not the end. So if you have no money, that's blessing. That's a blessing. If you have no money, just have people. Make friendship. Work with people. Give service to people. They will help you. They will support you. Money may make things easy, but money does not make things, things, things authentic. People offered me money when I was starting to walk. Uh, but uh, Vinoba, I see. my teacher Vinoba, Bhave, he said that go without money. Hmm. Go without money. He was a great teacher. Hmm. So Vinoba had no money. He practiced Kanchan Mukti which is money-free living. So if people say, I have no money, just say, you are blessed. People with lots of millions and billions of dollars and pounds, what good it is doing? Why every single individual must own their own house? 
I think we have to go back to living more frugally and living with families. And when you live with the family, you have to be more tolerant. You have to be more accepting. You have to be more kind. You have to be more compassionate. You have to be uh, humble because your parents will say something, your brothers will say something, your sister will say something. Why are you not doing like this? At that time, you have to be humble. So living in a family, I, mean, I think in the West, we are, have too many houses, underused, big houses, one or two people living in four-bedroom houses. This is, And then we take a mortgage. Because we want individual, we want isolated, we want separate, we want on our own, humility lacking. They can live in a community, share, absolutely, yeah, share. And then if you do what you need to do, the money also will come. Money will also come. I'm not saying, I'm not against money. I'm not against money. Money is a useful invention. Money is useful for means of exchange. Uh, and so on. That's okay. But money is not the end. Money is only a means to an end. What is your end? We have to always ask. What is my end? I have to always ask. Everybody has to ask, what am I living for? I'm not living for money. I'm living for something altruism, something higher, greater. And if I live for that, people will give you money. I did not have money for two and a half years. People gave me food, people gave me clothes, people gave me shoes, people gave me even boat ticket. From uh, England to America, I went by boat. I had no money. People gave me boat ticket. People give you everything. There is a, no shortage of money in the world. The short of imagination, short of altruism, short of action. So money will come. Money will follow you like a shadow follows you. That's but it's a shadow. You are not the shadow. Shadow is yours. But you are not of the shadow. So money is a useful thing, but don't work for money. Don't live for money. Money is money will be added to you. Do something bigger and greater and more wonderful and more imaginative.
the economy, traditional economy, has a very good um, classic economy. When you study economics, it's a very good uh, system. They say that three things you need for the economy. First, land or nature. That's the first. If you have no land, no forest, what's the point? You can't live. Then second is labor. Land, labor, capital. So second is labor. Labor means people. And the people are true capital. Their imagination, their skills. They can build a house. They can make furniture. They can do things. They can, their skills. So people are the capital. Nature is capital. People are capital. Then money. Money facilitates. Money is good if it's at the third level. But if you put money at the top and put people and nature at the service of money and capital, then economy is uh, skewed. So what you need is you need nature capital first, human capital second, because humans are nature. We are nature. We are made of earth, air, fire, water. And and uh, and basic elements as the out nature there. So nature is out there, and nature we are also nature. Uh, human skills, community cooperation, as you said, and uh, imagination and the skills, making things, building a house, um, building furniture, making things. We have lost that, and this is why we are become slaves of money. I have two hands. This is the source of my income. My two hands can build a house. My two hands can grow food. I can eat. My two hands can make a jacket. I can wear. My two hands can make a shoe, pair of shoes. I can wear. My two hands are the real money. And then when I make something, I can give to you and you can give me some money. Doesn't matter. But if I don't make something, then I make myself a slave of somebody. And I do something which I'm told to do, whether I want it or not. And so money, working for money, is a guarantee of enslavement. You become a slave because you are working for money. So money comes only third. Land, labor, capital. At the moment, we have put capital at the top. And humans are servants of capital. And the nature is servants of capital. Equity requires social justice, doesn't it? And so um, we have to work to create equity and social justice so that everybody, I call it elegant simplicity. Elegant simplicity. Mm. Because if you live elegant simplicity, that's a prerequisite for sustainability. Because at the moment we make, make, make so much stuff and clutter our houses and our hotels and our buildings and so on. It all comes from nature. We are turning nature into stuff, clutter. And so for sustainability, um, uh, uh, simplicity is prerequisite. Then for spirituality, for being contented and happy, we need few things. Because if you... Um, want lots of things, then you have to work hard to make money, then you have to work hard to buy, then you have to work hard 
to look after them. It's all time wasted in external things. So for your inner peace, you need few things. You need good things, good food, good clothes, good furniture, good something, but minimum, minimalism, basic. Enough is enough. Then it's a spiritual. And then equity, social justice. If you have few people have too much, others have too little. So without equity, without social justice, economy is no good. Economy must be accompanied with equity. Elegant simplicity means less stuff, less clutter, production not for profit, but production for need. Only purpose for production should be to meet the real, genuine need. Rather than equality, I like the word equity, you, you said. Equity means we all have a stake in the in the. In the economy, we all have a stake in our life. We have more, sort of, we all share. Equality is a little bit, sort of, um, uh, like five fingers are not equal. There's just some small, there's just a uh, thumb is small, this is big, mm-hmm. uh, and they still work together. So, but there's equity. They all have their share. They all have their function. They all support each other, cooperate, collaborate, work together to hold. If I want to hold a glass, all the fingers were equal will not be right. But my thumb needs to be a bit smaller but larger so that it can hold the glass and, and, and etc. So I would say your word equity is, is a more appropriate word. And if you have equity, then equality will be an automatic more or less, everybody will meet their need. Somebody can eat a bit more, somebody can eat a bit less, doesn't matter. Somebody can have a slightly bigger body, somebody can have a smaller body, somebody can have a bit... Doesn't matter, a little bit of... As long as everybody feel part of it, equity is there. Everybody feel I am part of it. Uh, so even a small child is a part of the uh, family. Uh, even uh, an old person of... Um, They're not of the same age, but... They have a share. They are. They have equity in the family. So I prefer the word equity to equality. I mean, equality is good, but equality is not uh, not as um, kind of neutral and as a kind of idealistic as equity. In the family, not everybody is equal, but everybody has stake in the family, and family is a good model. But they all have harmony and and equity. I think. Equal rights, yeah. Everybody has dignity. Everybody is equally respected. No ownership. Just relationship. Recently I was um, coming to London and I was on the train station and there was somebody cleaning and sweeping the floor and cleaning and keeping the station very neat and beautiful. And I went to him and I said, thank you for cleaning our station. Without you keeping this in such a nice, we wouldn't be so happy if there was clutter and dirt and dust and so on. Thank you very much, I said to this person. And he was very surprised. He said, 
Nobody thanks me like that. Thank uh, I'm glad you noticed that I'm cleaning. People don't thank people who are cleaning your station. But without them cleaning, your station will be so awful that you won't enjoy being there. So they are as important as the station master or the person who told, sold the ticket or the person who is driving the train or person who is managing the train. Everybody, if the cleaner was not there, station will not be good. If you have a proper craftsmanship and if you make something really by hand as a craftsman, machine can never make as beautiful and as perfect tool as human hands can make. So let's promote craftsmanship and interdependence together. Don't be a consumer. Be a maker. A human being is not a consumer. He's a maker. We are all makers. We can make something. The moment you say you are a consumer, you are putting the dignity of humanity down. I'm not a consumer. I refuse to be called consumer. I'm a maker. I make something. I make books. I make garden. I make kitchen. I make good food. I make things. I'm a maker. And when I made something, I eat it. When I grew food, I eat it. I made clothes, I wear it. Consuming is a byproduct. Not a consuming, it's living. That you are not a consumer, don't be a consumer, be a maker. And you can learn to be a maker. You've got two hands. Your hands are miracle. At the universities, they are being told that the only way to progress is industrialization, urbanization, consumerism, economic growth, all these paradigms. And they are being brainwashed for five years, day after day after day. I think your three principles of dignity of labor, interdependence and interconnectivity, those are fundamental. Now the corporations and corporate world is becoming aware of the issues. And that's a good opening. And Sweden is a good place to start because Sweden, it was Sweden, Stockholm, where the first environment conference took place in 1972. And I was there. The first UN conference on the environment. And that's where the limits to growth, blueprint for survival, Many, many things were launched there, and I was speaking there in the, in the forum, and I was invited by the, uh, the government of Sweden. And so even in 72, they were um, becoming uh, avant-garde. That's amazing. I mean, Sweden, as I said, a lot of awareness, and lots of people are doing very good work there. And, and it's one of the pioneer countries. It's very important for people to be the change, then communicate the change and then organize the change. First of all, I want to congratulate all those activists on the front line. You are the champions and the leaders of today and tomorrow. And what you are doing is courageous and you are not being 
self-centered, but you are doing something for the planet Earth and for the whole of humanity. And if we do not take a new direction of sustainability and resilience, then um, uh, our future is in jeopardy. And therefore, I want to congratulate and say that what you are doing is absolutely wonderful. It's on the lines of Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, uh, Nelson Mandela, Bangari Mathai. Many, many great women and men have taken such courageous path to stand up for their values and speak the truth to power. And that is what you are doing. And so I want to support you wholeheartedly. Uh, and what I always say is there are three steps towards transformation and change. The first step is be the change that you want to see in the world. Second step is communicate the change through poetry, through writing, through books, through plays, through theatre, through music, through demonstrating, through, through whatever you are doing. Um, communicate so that other people become aware of it. And then organise the change. And that's, in a way, um, what uh, many, many marches and many, many demonstrations are doing. They are, and you are doing that. So that's wonderful. So be the change, communicate the change effectively, and organise the change. Then... Change is coming. Transformation is its way. And we will be there. My name is Maureen Vandergeer and I'm in London. I am the co-founder of Resolution Possible, which is a research company. And I'm also an active member of Extinction Rebellion. Within the political circle of Extinction Rebellion, I'm one of the coordinators for the Citizens' Assembly Working Group. This is an incredible moment. I'll try and describe it to you best I can, but people have walked from Land's End, Truro, Stroud, um, Salisbury, um, Swansea, Reading. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving loads out, but from all over the place are now being welcomed by XR London in Hyde Park. And it's, it's, it's quite an emotional moment. <laughs> so, um, yeah. incredible. I think it's exceeded our wildest expectations, really. 
we didn't think we would be on the streets for nearly two weeks. The movement has been growing ever since it started back in October 2018. And then we got quite a lot of media attention at the time for blocking off five bridges. We did also have a lot of new people joining us. We were blocking roads and causing disruption. Uh, But also, I genuinely believe that a lot of people didn't quite get the severity of the climate and ecological crisis. We got more media coverage and it became better known what it was that we were about and what we wanted. People really started looking into it, accessing the science. The vast majority of people who sort of joined us after November said to us we had no idea how bad it was. We had no idea that we were talking in terms of climate breakdown and ecological collapse within our own lifetimes. It's not sort of something in a 100 years. It's something that's going to be happening within the next decade. As soon as you realize that, people were like, right, okay, yes, disruption seems extreme and civil disobedience, but actually it is extreme what we're facing. It's a justified method. So since November, it's just grown so much. People who've joined us and approached Extinction Rebellion either said, yes, we'll come and do actions, or you know they wanted to be more deeply involved and said, we want to join working groups. We give people non-violent direct action training and VDA training. So they learn to de-escalate potentially aggressive situations because we're so focused on being a non-violent movement. It sort of gives people the skills because it's a tense situation when you're sitting there on the street and there's dozens of police officers sort of around you and telling you to go away. And generally the police in the UK anyway, in London have been incredible, but it's still very intimidating and, and quite scary. And to then have this kind of training in the back of your mind saying, you know, these are the things to say and this is how you react. And there's a lot of chanting and singing and (laughs) so it all becomes quite surreal, really. But having that training is just so important. Many, many difficult situations will be eased by fun and music and singing and those kinds of things. So we can do those kinds of things and that will often um, ease a lot of tensions. But if that doesn't work, the first thing you can do is you can put your hand up like this and fall silent. Look, you see, everybody's doing it. And as soon as you put your hand up, we all know this, don't we? Okay. There's another one you can do if that doesn't work, which is... Maybe you can do this, guys. Um, uh, Clap once if you can hear me. Clap twice if you can hear me. Clap three times if we can hear me. Okay, so we're all familiar with that. So that's to establish silence. To establish silence when there's some violence going off will already create a different kind of a vibe. Okay, so that might be enough. If it isn't enough, the next thing you can do is sit down. Okay. So you're sitting down, and let's pretend that I'm the aggressor. So I'm facing you guys, sitting down. And that already creates a a situation where my my violence, if I was a violent person, would be exposed by having all these people sitting down around me. If that doesn't work, the next stage after that is to start chanting. 
And the chant that I'm recommending, it goes, we're non-violent, how about you? <laughs> okay, so do we want to try that? We've got some trouble already over there, haven't we? If we go and sort him out. We're non-violent, how about you? We're non-violent, how about you? We're non-violent, how about you? Everybody in the movement has to have the nonviolent civil disobedience training. But then also, if you decide to sign up as what we call an arrestable, so if you put yourself forward as saying, I'm willing to do disruption until I get to that point where I, I will get arrested, then you also have the RSD training. So that's where you get told everything, what your rights are, what the procedure will be when you get taken into custody. Behind the scenes of Extinction Rebellion, it is truly remarkable. There's just all these incredible volunteers who are keeping track of where all the arrestables are being taken, which police stations. There's legal observers at every action. They have the sort of bright orange bibs on and they take down the names of the people getting arrested. They take down the names of, of the officers who are the arresting officers. And then, and then they sort of have a rotor at all the police stations. And as you can imagine, in April, you know, we had over a thousand people arrested. So this was a, a big project for people to ensure that there were always people waiting for the arrestables to come out of the police stations. It is quite intimidating being arrested. At the beginning, you're always with your arresting officer. I was really lucky that I, I had a really nice office. But then you are put in a cell by yourself for many hours. You do kind of need that little bit of TLC afterwards because it is very disorientating. You have no idea what time it is and it's all very confusing. It was really something that was happening all over the world, not just in London. All over the world, people were doing actions in the name of their own Extinction Rebellion groups. It was hugely inspiring knowing that while we were sitting on the street in central London, we knew that people were doing the exact same thing all over the world. And it has to be like that, obviously, because we're talking about climate change and, and environmental breakdown. So we can't just have one country committing and everybody else carrying on as usual. It has to be a global effort. The ideas, so we had the pink boat on Oxford Circus and we had the, the Garden Bridge at Waterloo Bridge and also the logistics of the camps. So Marble Arch was kind of our main camp, but there was a, a reception area and there was a, a regenerative culture tent where there was yoga every morning. You know, there was this incredible cooking crew on every site. 
And throughout the time when we were occupying the streets, we had new recruits coming to us, at least three new rebel inductions per day for nearly two weeks. When it all comes together, it's just amazing. Even when police in the end took the pink boat away, someone immediately created this massive sign saying, we are the boat. Because obviously having something big, symbolic, removed from sight was sort of quite sad. You know, our boat. We were all there together and it was just incredible. It was such an amazing coming together of people from all walks of life. The sense of community there was was amazing. There were people from all over the UK, from all sorts of backgrounds. We actually had taxi drivers actually joining us in the end, you know, because they were like, well, I have children too and something does need to change and I can't just say I'm going to now individually do something. I need the support of the government to help us navigate through this crisis. There were farmers from all over the country, inner city, young people. It was a huge mix, especially amongst the youth. Then you have people well in their 80s who were camping out. I mean, it was just incredibly humbling, actually, to see people who are my grandmother's age, who were sitting on the bridge at Waterloo, and they were like, well, we will actually be the first ones to be arrested because we don't want these young people to have criminal records and impeding on their potential future working life. They were like, arrest us. We're happy to take this on. They kind of sat in front of all these young people, kind of took on that duty of getting arrested first. It was incredible. And then when the first thing they ask you is, well, aren't you just privileged white middle class people? What can you do? I think we all learned um, to shrug a lot <laughs> at the media and the, the weird stuff they, they came out with. We initially started buying a lot of food because we'd managed to raise quite a lot of money to be able to buy supplies in bulk to supply to, to the kitchens in the various sites. But we also started getting donations from actual food companies. There's a um, company called Riverford. They're based in Devon and they supplied us with loads of fresh fruit and veg and, you know, feeding the rebellion. So there's a lot of amazing people stepped forward to help everyone was provided for it was a moment in history at the moment obviously it's early days I hope that it will prove to be a positive moment in, in history certainly so it was very exciting when the UK parliament declared a climate emergency a few days ago but obviously now we're waiting to see what that will actually entail. We want the creation of a citizens' assembly to navigate through what a climate emergency is actually going to entail in sort of practical level, what change that's going to bring to all of our lives here in the UK. It's one thing declaring an emergency, and obviously it's one of our demands, and it's hugely important that uh, Parliament has taken this seriously and that they are talking about it and that an emergency has been declared. But 
it doesn't have any teeth yet, so to speak. It doesn't mean anything yet. And that's what we need to focus on now. With the Michael Gove meeting, who's the um, environment secretary uh, last week, he kind of talked us through all the things that the government had already done. And, you know, you know, what a waste of time. Why are you telling me this? We already know this. Stop telling us how uh, amazing you think you are. I can't believe that in 2019, this is still how government functions. only thing that I'm hopeful for is if we get a deliberative democracy to supplement the current system. I think it's the only way forward. This is the aim, is that we will have a national citizens' assembly on the climate emergency. So that would be on a, on a national level. We need to have national policies with teeth that can address the big strong corporations and that government has the the mandate and the strength to say no. They're, those sort of things, you know, have to come from a national level or even indeed an international level. There needs to be systematic, systemic change. So it's not just out of the goodness of the individual's hearts that this needs to happen. We also need to hold governments and corporations accountable as well. Time is ticking.
My name is Siti Kasim. I'm a lawyer by profession in Malaysia, in Kuala Lumpur. You see, I used to do a lot of human rights cases, children rights, the refugees. But then I discovered that I can't be saving the world, you know. I must focus on one or two issues. So I actually take my work with the indigenous people in the peninsula of Malaysia. I can expand my knowledge about the law to the orang asli community. So I go into the interior a lot, into the jungle, to their villages and to their settlements. And I told them that they do have rights and that they shouldn't be afraid to stand up and uh, you know take up that right. Of course, they have their own activists as well, the orang asli activists. I don't charge this kind of thing. They are the eco-warriors, indigenous people. They are the front line of our nature conservation. We should recognize that because the way they preserve the balance of the ecosystem uh, is the way they live. For example, they have their pantang, you know, like meaning that they can't do certain things in their culture. It's been going down for generations, but there is a reason for it. It's actually to preserve the balance of the ecosystem. So these are their rules. The Tamiya tribe, they told me that they will never touch the tiger because uh, to them, the tiger is very powerful. Powerful in the sense of spirit-wise. They revered the tiger very much. In the olden days, of course, uh, nowadays no more because of the settlement built by the government. They plant their rice and everything for their own uh, sustenance. And after a while, they will shift, rotating, that's the word, yeah. So it's a rotating thing. So how they preserve it, you know, and people don't understand that it's beneficial to the earth. Generally, Malaysians support that we help our indigenous people. But when it comes to religion, they become much more possessive. They don't like the truth, you know. People hate to hear the truth. With me, nothing is too sensitive. <laughs> but we still must uh, keep on pushing the boundary. Otherwise, we are never going to improve. That's what I believe anyway. Human rights is something that it was not given, it's already born with us. We are born with right as a human being. Our country is unique, you know, Malaysia, because we have so many cultures, so many races, and they all have, uh, you know, different ways. I know I have many, many supporters, and I know I have very, very good people around me. I think I'm blessed uh, with a strong constitution by God that I don't really care about what people say online because I know myself, I'm very confident about who I am and what I am. I think women, we evolve better than men. 
I notice from my 55 coming up to 56 years old, I notice that the more religious a person, the more close their mind would be. They are limiting their minds uh, to the barriers that they build up or walls that they build up for themselves uh, based on their faith or their beliefs. I just um, think that religion should not be imposed on anyone. Even the indigenous people in Malaysia, right? They do not have a religion. But uh, of course, uh, these uh, people start to go into the interior, you know, where majority of them live, trying to spread their faith, what we call as da'wah, missionary. Islam and the Christians usually do this. They go into the jungle where the orang asli reside and then they try to get as many as possible of the indigenous people, uh, what we call them as orang asli here, to convert to the faith, either Christian or Islam. The problem with our indigenous people, the orang asli in Malaysia, they are also determined by law who can be an orang asli. You are only an orang asli, an indigenous person, if one of your parent is asli and you are practicing your culture and the third one that you must be able to speak the language of your tribe. And so these three things, if you don't practice one, you are no longer an orang asli. Like for Malay, you have to, once you're a Malay, you're a Muslim, automatically. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It doesn't matter, but on papers, you are. But with the asli also, once they convert to Islam or Christianity, then they are being told not to practice a certain uh, aspect of their culture. Because it is not accepted in their new faith. In fact, it has been used by government before. When we took matters to court on behalf of the orang asli, pro bono of course, they become smarter and smarter, government lawyers. They start to ask, are these litigants really orang asli? It's really crazy. go and see the orang asli in the interior and you meet the older generation, those who knew the British during their governance, they only have good things to say about the British. The older orang asli always say that the British look after them very well. Their health uh, were taken care of and in fact, until now, even if you're white, if you go into the interior, they look up very highly towards white people. Because uh, they still have these remnants of memories on how the British treated them. They always say that the British treated them better than the government of Malaysia. They probably felt they were much more better off because there were no palm oil being opened up on their land. They were not forced uh, to move out from their villages. Uh, they are not forced to do anything. They don't want to do it. With the new government, obviously, I think the intention is probably noble. They want to try and help uh, to improve the life of the orang asli by bringing them out and live amongst others to integrate, to assimilate. They want to try and assimilate the orang asli to become Malays. Just take out these jungle people uh, and, and help them. This is what they think. What I see even until now, 
majority of people do not try to understand the psyche of the orang asli, uh, the indigenous people. People don't understand. There is no way you can actually expect them to live like us. Why don't you ask them when you see them sitting and resting? How many days were you in the jungle to try and find their sustenance? It's not easy. Eh? Just a couple of hours you go into the jungle, you know how hard it is. But when they go into the jungle, they go for a couple of days. Can do that as a town person. To be honest, I would say 99.9% of the logging, they are all legal. They are all legal. This is uh, the problem, you know, people think that there are many illegal loggings in Malaysia. No, no, it's not even illegal. They do get the license from the state government. They do get the license from our forestry department. They are supported by our politician and the state government. This is where the problem lies because a lot of corruption going on. They don't care about the well-being of the forest. They don't understand the forest is related to us living in towns, you know. They cannot relate to that. Even one of our ministers, not the current government, yeah, because they are only about not even one year. I'm talking about the previous government. There's one minister actually said that the palm oil they consider as forest. You are a minister, you must find out what is really the international world considered as forest. They say they planted the palm oil tree there. So it's a tree, you know. <laughs> so. It's really hard when people making decision without understanding the nature of our aura asli. They use um, poisonous things, you know, pesticides. But what they don't understand is that all these pesticides dip into the ground and go into the water and into the river where the aura asli use for their own uh, drinking water. When they live amongst the palm oil plantation, a lot of the aura asli, they have a lot of problems you know with skin disease and uh, generally they are not healthy if they live actually in and around the the plantation yes i know the current malaysian government are pretty upset with the european union because they say they are not going to buy any more palm oil from malaysia i support uh, the eu action but of course the government is worried because of course they have to maintain the economy right why don't the government actually ensure no more forests being cut down? Recently, they are opening Durian King because Durian King now commands more value than the palm oil. Some state governments now allow, allowing these companies uh, that want to plant durian in the middle of the jungle. Uh, this is the fight right now that we have with the Kelantan government. They have given this company, M7, a 10,000 hectare to plant Musang King durian at the expense of the Orang Asli. Even right now, they have already trampled on the Orang Asli graveyards, you know, 
and a lot of things. So this makes them very upset, of course. But M7 is uh, quite rich. They do everything they can not to abide by the noise made by NGOs as well as the public. We have a federal government and then we have the state government. And then the, the federal government cannot decide on land. When it comes to land, only the state government can decide. Power is within the state government when it comes to issues of land. So the federal government cannot tell, for example, Kelantan, hey, why don't you just give these uh, indigenous people the land they want, but not, not because they want to destroy it, they want to make sure that all the things they need is still there. Nobody wants to give up. No way. Because the land where the orang asli live or, or, or sit is so valuable. This government is trying to do something to help, in which I'm very proud of. It is the first action which our federal government has taken, suing the state government for taking the rights of the orang asli on their land. So this is the first case, maybe perhaps in the world, that a federal government suing a state government. Under the law, the orang asli comes under federal, you see. They have the fiduciary duty uh, to make sure that the orang asli lives are not affected uh, by this so-called modernization. But after so many, many years, the orang asli in Kelantan have done so many blockades. Even fighting contractor came and used uh, weapons as well, you know, trying to scare the orang asli kids. They persevere. This is the first case that our federal government sued the companies as well as the state government. This is the first case now. We are very excited about it, actually. All this while, it's been us, the lawyers. The lawyers are the ones who take matters to court on behalf of the Orang Asli. Of course, pro bono. I can tell you in one hand only, the same lawyers will be doing the same cases for our indigenous people. Despite all the cases in support of the rights of the Orang Asli, our government before never, never make a policy out of those cases. Because, as you know, cases are actually laws. But they don't, they don't care. They don't respect. They don't respect at all. The case uh, not started yet because tactic, yes. There are a lot of other applications made by the companies and the state government. Okay? So they are asking for a stay on this law, you know, then they have an intervener application. Just like Najib case, uh, you know, they keep on doing things to delay matters. There are about 18 tribes, okay, or what used to be 18 tribes um, in the peninsula of uh, Malaysia. And uh, some tribes have totally uh, wiped out basically. Uh, uh, for example, right now, no more. No more. Uh, only by name only. Right now, we only have very few of uh, the Batiks, okay? Uh, and also the Jahai. These are the most shy people. Very shy. And they are from the Negrito line. And these are the people, they are very, very, very shy. You know, during the big flood, Back in 2016, or I can't remember now, the big flood in Kelantan. I've heard story about where the uh, Jahai people live behind 
the Melayu kampung, Malay kampung, Malay village, and the uh, and the orang asli live uh, behind, further behind. So when the food aid came, people just drop at the first Malay village, yeah, and the food never being passed on to the Jahai uh, village at the back. They always stop these uh, cars from going further, and these uh, Jahai people will not even come out. They don't come out to demand their rights to take the food. No, they won't. They will not fight. They will not argue with you. They are, this is not just not them. So very few left. And uh, what I'm also worried for our indigenous people that soon, you know, will be no more. So the whole of Malaysia, the population is about 35 million. But for the indigenous people, orang asli in the peninsula, uh, there are about 200 to 250,000. That's all. They are only a drop in the ocean. There will be no more of our orang asli in Malaysia. Sabah Sarawak, there are many, many more. Mostly there. Mostly in Sabah Sarawak. Only a few tribes left. But they consider themselves to be different. They prefer to be on their own if they can. I hope to see some changes, serious changes in another year's time, hopefully. Otherwise, I think we have to think about a third force. We must keep on fighting in what we believe. Thank you for listening to our first episode. Nordic by Nature is an imaginarylife.net production created with the support of the Nordic Ministries. Please help us by sharing a link to this episode with the hashtag TracesOfNorth and follow us on Instagram at Nordic by Nature Podcast. Many thanks to Satish Kumar and Elaine Green for their ongoing support and encouragement. Please check out Resurgence magazine on resurgence.org and Schumacher College on schumachercollege.org.uk. Many thanks to Marion van der Geer, active member of Extinction Rebellion and founder of the consultancy Resolution Possible. Thanks also to Extinction Rebellion members Emma Wallace and Sophie Jenner, who were kind enough to share their rebellion sound recordings with us. Please see extinctionrebellion.com to read more about the movement's demands for transparency and climate justice. And finally, thank you to Siti Kasim, lawyer, activist and writer of the column City Thoughts on the Star Online. That's S-I-T-I-T-H-O-T-S. The flute music is a recording made by Siti of a nose flute played by an indigenous Orang Asli man from the Temia tribe in Kelantan. All the sounds have been arranged by Diego Losa. 
you can find him via his website, diegolosa.blogspot.com. You can also see RJ's project on foundnature.org and follow the Foundation for the Contemplation of Nature on Facebook and Contemplation of Nature on Instagram. We'd love to hear your thoughts about our podcast, so please don't hesitate to email me, Tanya, on nordicbynature at imaginarylife.net.